in nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Queen of heaven, rejoice. Alleluia. For he whom we did merit to bear, Alleluia, is risen as he said, Alleluia. Pray for us to God, Alleluia. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary, Alleluia. For the Lord is truly risen, Alleluia. The following is a reading from the Ways of Mental Prayer by Right Reverend Dom Vitalis Lahodi. First part, on prayer in general. Chapter 4, The Elements of Success in Mental Prayer. Although the non-mystical kinds of mental prayer are accessible to all, with perhaps some very rare exceptions, yet account must first of all be taken of the will of God who distributes his gifts as he pleases. Still, there are diverse elements of success that depend on our own will. Some of these regard the dispositions of our, own, of our soul, others are monastic observances, others in fine mental prayer itself. Dispositions of the Soul Let us put in the first place the degree of purity to which the soul has attained. There will always be a rather strict proportion between holiness of life and the degree of mental prayer one has arrived at. These two things run parallel and give each other mutual support. They progress together or they fall away together. Meditation, for instance, produces little by little purity of heart, and this latter predisposes the soul to contemplation. It is therefore of supreme importance to acquire the fourfold purity of the conscience, of the heart, of the intellect, and of the will. Number one, purity of conscience, which is a state of aversion for venial sin. Some slight faults still escape the soul, but she is not satisfied to live in the habit of these faults and to, rem- and to permit them to take root. She is watchful over herself, combats sin, detaches herself from it, conceives a profound horror of it, and, loving cleanness of heart, she has the king for her friend. On the other hand, if she is entangled in any affection for sin, she has no longer the same relish for God, and God has no longer the same liking for her. All these multiplied, ill-combated faults, like a thick and icy cloud, dim the eye of faith, cool, holy affections, benumb the will, and paralyze its good resolutions. After our falls, we must hasten to confess them with humility and to blot them out by a prompt repentance. Nevertheless, even in and after our sorrow for our sins, says St. Francis de Sales, we should keep our peace of mind, put aside then all the gloomy, restless, peevish, and therefore proud depression. In consequence of a repentance full of trust in God, our very weaknesses, by humbling us, become a part of our remedy. And according to the same spirit, to rise constantly without ever being discouraged, without losing anything of our firm resolution to belong wholly to God, is the effect of heroic virtue. Such a soul pleases our Lord very much and draws him to her by humility. Number two, purity of heart. Our heart is pure when we love only God, or according to God. We must, therefore, banish thence every culpable affection, sever every tie of which the Divine Master is not the beginning and the end, and which is not regulated according to His will. As long as we are attached to anything created, we have no longer the same freedom to raise ourselves to God. The effects of the heart engross the thoughts and distract the mind, and then These thoughts and affections draw us far away from our Lord towards the object of our love. If, on the contrary, the heart belongs to God alone, our thoughts and affections move at ease in prayer, as a fish does in water. 
The heart carries the soul to God, and then everything else becomes to it insipid. And whilst it is making and multiplying acts of love, it holds the mind captive and keeps it steadily fixed upon God, like to a mother who, passionately loving her child, finds no difficulty in thinking of him, in gazing upon him for whole days together. In fact, to look upon him and to love him is her very life, and to sacrifice herself for him is her happiness. Number three, purity of mind. This is the control we exercise over the working of our imagination, our memory, and our thoughts in order to banish whatever sullies or endangers the soul, and even what merely dissipates or unduly engrosses it. First, then, there are bad or dangerous thoughts, imaginations, and memories, all, for instance, that is contrary to the holy virtue, to charity, to humility, etc., all that recalls the real or imagined success, injuries, or praise we met with in the past. All that nourishes resentment, bitterness, or a too tender affection. Whatever could attract and seduce us, such as beauty and pleasure. In a word, whatever would stain the purity or trouble the peace of the soul. There are also useless thoughts which distract the mind. Idle at first, they soon become dangerous and culpable. Finally, there are thoughts good in themselves, but which come at a wrong time or absorb too much of our attention. They regard, for instance, our work, our office, our studies, but it is now, not now the time to attend to them, or if it be, instead of omitting them only as far as duty requires, we allow them to evade, invade, preoccupy, or even wholly absorb us. Or they may be thoughts connected with virtue, but in such a way as to cause agitation and trouble as happens in the case of scruples. If we wish to become men of prayer, we must regulate and discipline the mind, for whatever sullies, troubles, or distracts it can only be harmful to union with God. All this is an obstacle to recollection and attention, stifles devotion, paralyzes good resolutions, and causes a mutual coldness between God and the soul. God willingly communicates himself to hearts that are pure, to minds that keep silence in order to listen to him. He loves not to raise his voice in the midst of tumult, and an unmortified soul is exposed to the turmoil and noise of a thousand various thoughts. To abandon oneself habitually to every caprice of one's mind, and to aspire at the same time to become a man of prayer, is to desire the impossible. You might just as reasonably select as your place of prayer the most crowded street of one of our great cities. When our heart has been thoroughly purified, the disorder of our thoughts will cause us less trouble. It will hardly have any hold upon us. Meanwhile, we must ceaselessly watch and combat. St. Bernard points out to us the means to gain the victory. Place at the door of your memory a porter called the remembrance of your profession. And when your mind feels itself overwhelmed by weight of shameful thoughts, let it reproach itself in these terms. Come now, ought you to think on such things when you are a priest? You who are a cleric, you who are a monk, does it become a servant of God, a friend of God, to dwell upon such thoughts were it only for an instant? So also at the door of your will, where carnal desires usually dwell like a family at home, place a sentinel named the memory of your heavenly country, for it has the power to expel evil desires as one wedge drives out another. Finally, beside reason's couch, you must post a guardian so inexorable that he spares no one, and this guardian is the remembrance of hell. The memory of the passion and also that of benefits received are likewise excellent doorkeepers, 
but the most vigilant will ever be the love of God. 4. Purity of will. Our will is pure when it no longer desires anything but the will of God. It is pure in its interior dispositions when it is thoroughly resolved to submit to the laws of God and of His Church, to our rules, to the orders of superiors, to the guidance of providence. In a word, when it is ready to do always what God wills, in the time and manner that He wills, and for the motives that please Him. God thus being master of our will in its interior dispositions will also be master of its external acts. The source will communicate its own purity to the stream. We must above all take care to maintain our will in this habitual tendency, and when we must pass on to actions, especially if they flatter some passion, or if they are in harmony with some natural inclination, we must watch over our intentions to purify them and make them supernatural, and over our actions themselves, lest they deviate from the straight path and end in self-love. The purity of the will contributes to the success of mental prayer, just as does purity of conscience, of which it is the source. Between the soul and, the, and God, union of wills produces union of hearts and a holy familiarity. On the contrary, disagreement of wills breaks off this intimate union and replaces it by constraint and coldness. When the soul is ready to do whatever God wills, she has no difficulty in understanding what her duty is and in resolving to perform it. Whilst any attachment to our own judgment and our own will blinds the eyes of the intellect, hinders good resolutions, and thus sterilizes mental prayer, which fails to attain its principal end if it does not break off this attachment. To sum up, purity of conscience draws God to us. Purity of mind contributes to recollection and attention. Purity of heart to devotion. Purity of will to efficacious resolutions. When a soul is thus purified, she has God alone in the mind, God alone in the heart, God alone in the will. Now that she has removed the obstacles, she converses quite naturally with her guest and finds in her prayer great facility, real profit, and sometimes even delight. We do not require this purification to be already accomplished in order that the soul may enter upon the way of meditation and take its first steps with success. On the contrary, we are perfectly well aware that meditation is one of the great means to arrive at this purity. We merely mean to say that purity of life and mental prayer travel hand in hand and lend each other a mutual support, and that the great preparation we must bring to mental prayer is steady progress in purifying our souls by prayer, by our penitential life, and other ordinary means. Happy we should it please God to perfect this purification at some future day in the crucible of passive purgation. Monastic Observances Enclosure cuts off the noises of the world and favors solitude of heart and mind. Our austerities by detaching the soul from sensible pleasures leave it free to raise itself to God. All our observances, when well kept, contribute to produce that fourfold purity which is the sister of mental prayer. St. Bernard in particular says that fasting imparts devotion and confidence to prayer. And so we see how well fasting and prayer go together according to what is written. When a brother is helped by a brother, both shall be consoled. Proverbs 18.19 Prayer obtains the strength to fast, and fasting merits the grace of prayer. Fasting strengthens prayer. Prayer sanctifies fasting and offers it to the Lord. Two of our observances, silence, namely, and the good use of our free time, have a more intimate relation to mental prayer. How can a religious neglect to observe silence and be also a man of prayer? 
Besides multiplying acts of disobedience, small scandals, and sins of the tongue, he shows by his talkativeness that God is not enough for him, and that he knows not how to abide with himself and watch over his interior. By speaking, he is constantly laboring to empty himself of God, to lose the perfume of piety, to extinguish all devotion. By listening, to fill his soul with dissipation, and to deliver it up to the demon of curiosity and levity. So St. John Climacus says that much speaking dries up the tears of compunction, destroys the custody of the heart, renders meditation distracted, cools and freezes divine fervor, weakens or rather kills prayer. But on the contrary, silence is the father of prayer, the master of contemplation, the guardian of divine fervor, the secret path by which the soul ascends to God, the lover of tears, etc. External silence of tongue and gesture is not sufficient if the memory and imagination may prattle away and fill us with distractions. Our silence itself ought to be occupied with God, and the more silent we are towards men, the more sustained ought to be our conversation with Him. Silence thus kept makes of our monasteries, in spite of numbers, a solitude as still as the desert, and of the heart of each religious a silent sanctuary, wherein is heard only the prayer which ascends to God, and the voice of God lovingly answering the soul. In like manner, the good use of our free time favors mental prayer. As soon as the bell announces the end of work, let us hasten, unless obedience withholds us, to the place of pious reading, as a hungry man betakes himself to a well-served table. For a fervent religious ought always to have a hunger for God, and during the free time to replenish himself with him. Whether he prefers to pray or to employ the time in pious reading, he substitutes for the grosser thoughts of work thoughts more divine. If he had been somewhat dissipated, he now returns to God and plunges once more into the supernatural, into holy thoughts and pious affections. By reading, he learns and acquires a treasure of safe and abundant spiritual knowledge, and thus, according to the expression attributed to St. Bernard, he will have a substantial nourishment, quote, to chew and ruminate in order to extract its sap and penetrate with it even the inmost recesses of his heart. How indeed can we have holy thoughts, and how can we help making empty and useless meditations if we be not first of all instructed by reading or sermons? Thus pious reading is at once the great provider and the guide of our mental prayer. Mental prayer itself. Finally, there are elements of success which have reference to mental prayer itself. Number one, we must adopt that which suits our degree of progress. It is the common teaching of the saints that to each of the three ways, purgative, illuminative, and unitive, corresponds a special kind of prayer. Beginners need meditation. Those who have already made some progress will succeed better with effective prayer and derive more profit from it. To the most proficient, the prayer of simplicity will be best suited, unless indeed God should raise them to mystical contemplation. Let us not conceive the silly ambition of rising at once to the higher kinds of prayer. We would resemble a child who would want to work with his father's tools, although he can hardly lift them. David was unable to move in the gigantic armor of Saul. If he had kept it on, it would only have encumbered him and led to his ruin. He took it off, relied upon his sling, and triumphed. An opposite and no less fatal mistake consists in wishing to confine oneself to meditation for one's whole life. For after some time, it has produced its effect and then becomes unprofitable. 
To persist in it, therefore, would mean to be perpetually recommencing a work already done, a path already traversed. Let everyone keep to the kind of prayer that suits him, and, of course, in such a delicate matter, the advice of a wise director is especially necessary. Number two, we should choose a subject suitable to our needs. To take up a book of meditations, even the very best, and to go through all its meditations one after another, whether they suit the state of our soul or not, is the very way often to make entirely useless meditations. In a good meditation book, there are remedies for all ills, but no one in a pharmacy would think of taking the remedies in the order in which they are placed on the shelves. Today, the first bottle, tomorrow the second, then the third. There are tools for fashioning all the virtues. The choice of them should be made according to the work and purpose we aim at accomplishing. Now, one, to everyone it is profitable to foster or revive the general desire of perfection. Two, all again except the most advanced ought to come to a resolution which is particular and suited to their needs, as, for instance, the practical way to extirpate such a vice, to cultivate such a virtue. These principles being laid down, beginners having for their object to purge themselves from sin, i.e. to repent, to atone, to correct themselves, and having to fight against temptations, passions, and evil inclinations, combat being their element, fear their mainspring, should, unless they be scrupulous, choose for their ordinary subjects of meditation the great truths of salvation, everything, in fact, which may excite this fear which is their motive power. The maxims of eternity of St. Ligori, for instance, would be for them an excellent manual, which are more fully developed in his preparation for death. Those who are more advanced, the proficients, although they may not abandon the fight, have, however, for their principal object, the acquisition of virtues, especially of faith and hope without forgetting obedience, humility, and self-denial. What sustains one in this long and rugged path is, first of all, the hope of eternal goods, and the example of our Lord. These, then, should generally leave aside the great truths, unless indeed they meditate upon them under a new light, namely, in order to excite themselves to the practice of virtue, and should habitually choose subjects, such subjects as heaven, divine grace, and glory, the value of efforts and sacrifices, the mysteries of our Lord's life and death, the obligations of their state, vices, and virtues, etc. Then there will come a time when their attraction will be to meditate on the truths which are apt to inflame love. The greater number, indeed, of meditation books seem written for proficients. In the unitive way, God has been found, is possessed, and at all times is enjoyed with delight. There remains still a struggle to be maintained and progress to be made, but the ordinary state of the soul is that of loving union with God. Fear has become more filial. Hope, on the side of self-interest, is often, as it were, unconscious. Love, it is which now rules. It is, it is it which now has most power to move and most charm to occupy the soul. The time of prayer is now passed in simple and but little very acts of loving union. The soul thinks upon God with less reasoning. It looks upon him rather than reasons. And above all, it makes acts of love, praise, admiration, humble adoration, devotion, self-abandonment, etc., The same love which makes our prayer an effusion of the heart before God communicates at the same time to the conscience more delicacy, to the will more generosity, to the hand more energy. It becomes the main source whence spring affections and actions. Souls arrived at this point will find hardly any profit in meditation books. 
Jesus Christ being our all, the beginning, the way, and the goal, it is only right that he should be the chiefest object which occupies us in prayer. Some will meditate on his childhood, others on his hidden life, his divine heart, the Holy Eucharist, etc. St. Liguri advises meditation especially on the Passion. The particular mystery is of small consequence, provided that there our Lord is found. St. Francis de Sales recommends meditations made upon our Lord's life and passion. Looking upon him by frequent meditations, your whole soul will be filled with him. You will learn his demeanor and model your actions upon his. You will learn with the aid of his grace to speak, act, and will like him. In all our prayers and actions, the Savior should be meditated, considered, sought after, that our soul may be nourished by the bread which has come down from heaven. The Devout Life What we have just said is rather a direction than an invariable rule. There are certain feasts and certain circumstances which will determine differently the subject of our prayer. Besides, account must be taken of our spiritual leanings, and finally, according to St. Liguori, the good rule is to meditate by preference upon the truths and the mysteries which affect us more powerfully and which procure for our soul the most abundant nourishment. Number three. Beginners especially are advised to prepare the subject of the morning meditation to consecrate to it the last thoughts of the evening before and the first thoughts of the next morning. According to the most renowned masters who have treated of mental prayer, the subject should be determined upon from the evening before, at least in its general lines, and the less that is left to accident and to mental effort at the time itself of meditation, the more secure will be our prayer. Negligence in preparing the points is mentioned as one of the causes which commonly produces aridity. This preparation is indispensable when we have to make our mental prayer in the dark, but may still be fruitfully made even when we are to use a light, because we shall thus bring to our prayer a mind full of the subject. It would, however, be too much to exact it for every meditation which we make during the free time. When treating of the prayer of simplicity, we will point out who those are that may omit all preparation of this kind. Number four. Another element of success upon which St. Teresa strongly insists is a determined will to persevere in prayer in spite of all temptations, troubles, and aridity. For this the saint gives three reasons. God who heaps his favors upon us well deserves that we should give up to him a little of our time. The demon fears nothing so much as strong and resolute souls. His cowardice prevents his attacking those who are on their guard, the more so as what he does to injure them turns to their profit and his own discomfiture. But if he finds a soul which has not a will determined to persevere, he never leaves it at peace. He agitates it by a thousand fears and puts before its eyes numberless difficulties. Finally, we combat much more generously when we have a fixed resolution never to yield. To become, therefore, men of prayer, we must be armed with courage and constancy. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen.